Jesus this morning. Oh, that song we just sang. Someday we're going to find a better place. It's always while we're here in time, someday. Unknown yet future. I had to think this morning of a grieving family. Some of you have probably heard this. But, uh, a young minister and his family had gone to Florida last week, this past week, and for a wedding. I believe the wedding was on Friday, but uh, I'm not sure if it was Wednesday or Thursday this happened, but he decided to take his family to the coast there in Florida. He went out on a paddleboard got caught in a riptide and drowned. So instead of a happy wedding, I guess it was a little different situation. Someday we say, we sing. But for some people, it ends up being today. Let's pray for the family. It's Lester, the Lester Martin family. Their grief. Also, before the message, I'd like to just um, announce again, this has been quite a while that we had announced um, Bunny's application for membership here. And we apologize for the delay in this. We're sincerely sorry for how long that has taken. Since we have a letter of recommendation from the Sterling Congregation, um, we and if there's no other concerns, Given, we uh, do plan to receive her on Friday evening at our council meeting, so uh, you can remember that. All right, now for the message. What is today? How many of you know what the significance of today is? Raise your hands. Okay, I think there's three or four of you. This isn't a scolding, so... How many of you have ever forgotten Christmas Day? Just clean forgot about Christmas Day. Anybody? How many of you ever forgot your birthday? A couple people. How many of you ever forgot Easter? You're the young people, mostly. All right, so what is today? Anyone? Pentecost. Pentecost. And I admit this morning that I have sometimes forgotten about Pentecost. So, I would like to preach on Pentecost this morning. You may turn with me to the um, book of Acts, chapter 2. And my, my goal in this message, the burden on my heart, is that when we're done, we will understand something of the significance of Pentecost. Maybe to our shame, we remember Christmas easier than Pentecost because... 
the world makes such a big ado about it in so many wrong ways. And I know a lot of Christian churches remember Pentecost, so that's good. But, um, you know, really I think in all, in all fairness, we probably should remember Pentecost as much or more than Christmas Day. Now, I hesitate to say that just because you can't segment any part of Christ's work. You know, from his birth, his ministry, his suffering and death, his resurrection, his ascension, and then Pentecost. You can't really separate those. They're all important. It's a package, as we, as we would say. But I think it is really important that we do think of Pentecost and understand this. All right, Acts 2, verses uh, 1 to 4. We could read more of this, but we won't probably do necessarily more of this this morning. May we be referring to other verses. Now notice verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared... Unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, a few things, just think about this passage. The word Pentecost means what? What does the word Pentecost mean in the literal translation? 50 days after the Passover. Right, 50. It's the Greek word for 50 or 50 weeks, 50, uh, sorry, 50 days. And it's um, also sometimes referred to as the week of weeks um, feast, or the week of weeks means seven sevens. Um, and of course you say, well, that's only 49, but they were to start counting the day after, which means that then you have the 50. Now, what is interesting here is that of the assembly of the apostles, or disciples, we could say, says they were here all with one accord in one place. And reflect with me a little bit on back to where, how they used to get together before this experience. There was a uniting here that had not happened earlier. Many times there was dissension among them, and they were trying to figure out who's the greatest, and you know, and, and things like that. But here they were sitting together. They were together on this day. They were all with one accord in one place. I think that's interesting. And so this was the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover. And <clears throat> I would like to focus, you know, if we give this message a title, the title would be Pentecost Fully Come. Pentecost fully come. We have that in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost was fully come. Now, as I said, it, it's referring to 50. The 50 days, it was the week of weeks. It was the feast of weeks, sometimes it was called. It was the feast of the first fruits, where they brought the first fruit of their harvest for the priests to weigh before the Lord. We're going to look at a little bit of that. Turn with me now back to Numbers chapter 3. We want to get the historical setting of what the meaning of Pentecost, trace it right into the New Testament, and then understand some of the practical parts of this. 
Numbers chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 8. These also are the generations... No, I have that wrong, I'm sorry. It is Leviticus 3. thought something didn't quite look right there. I believe that I have that. I had the ribbon right in my Bible, but the reference wrong on my notes. Thank you. Leviticus 23, verses 1 to uh, down to verse 8. Sorry about that. Leviticus 23. When the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, Concerning the feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day of the Sabbath of rest and holy convocation ye shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which ye shall proclaim in their seasons. In the fourteenth day of the first month at even is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread. Unto the Lord seven days ye must eat unleavened bread. In the first day ye shall have an holy convocation, ye shall do no servile work therein. But ye shall offer an offering made by far unto the Lord seven days. In the seventh day is an holy convocation, ye shall do no servile work therein. So here, here we have this picture. So the, the Passover was the 14th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar year. The Feast of Unleavened Bread started the next day, the 15th day of the first month. And they had to eat unleavened bread for seven days. And this also then included, if we would read further down in this chapter, the first fruits, which is why the um, Pentecost is also called the Feast of the uh, First Fruits. They were to bring a part of that sacrifice was fresh grain. The first sheaf of the harvest was to be brought before the Lord at this same time. So the day after the Passover. And you know what fresh grain was, or what fresh grain means, you know, they would have had their, maybe they had run out of their stored grain. This was the first grain of the harvest, considered the best of the grain. And of course, we know that fresh grain, you know, fresh bread. And yet in this occasion, they were to not eat leavened bread, but they were to eat unleavened bread. Um... And so this unleavened bread was, is referring back to their hasty departure from Egypt when they took their kneading troughs, the Bible says, with the dough before, they had the, before the yeast was mixed in or before it had risen. There was no yeast in it yet. But in haste, they had to leave Egypt at the time of the Passover when, when they left Egypt And so this was a part of this unleavened bread that they were to observe yearly the day after the Passover. So the Passover was observed, the shedding of the blood, the putting of the blood upon the the lintel and the doorposts, and then was also the unleavened bread. Now also Israel connected this feast to the anniversary of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And that is also interesting that um, the Jewish um, historians tell us that. And that they also connected the giving of the law to this as well. 
Now, let's just connect the dots on this from the historical perspective. Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, was sacrificed on on Passover, becoming our Passover Lamb, the spotless Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We are called in receiving forgiveness through the blood of the Lamb, the blood of our Passover Lamb, to stay away from the leaven of sin and to leave the sins of old Egypt behind. And there was, it was, for Israel, it was a new day when they left Egypt behind. You know, later they fell, some of them fell back into the, um, the lusts of Egypt and were killed. They died before the Lord because of that. But it was to leave Egypt behind. And uh, the, God told, told um, Joshua that, that this day, you know, the, um, the, the effects of Egypt, as it were, were rolled off of them. They, they, were, they were beyond that. Now there is also, uh, in relation to today, we today on Pentecost also rejoice that the spiritual law, as you think about commemorating the anniversary of the giving of the law, we also, in a sense, commemorate in Pentecost, we rejoice in the fact that the spiritual law is written, not in tables of stone, like in the Old Testament that they celebrated, but in the fleshly tables of the heart, which you get that from uh, 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 3. And so, and, and that was prophesied. And uh, Hebrews talks about that. That there was going to be a time when the Spirit was going to be poured out. The law of God was going to be written in the hearts. And so that is, in a sense, a celebration of Pentecost. So there was also, there are also the first fruits of all people that now can come to Christ through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost, which we have the story here in Acts later in this chapter. He talks about the fact that there were 3,000 souls that were saved and baptized that day. That those are part of the first fruits unto God in relation to the Christian church. And so we can say it this way. Jesus unleashed the power of the Holy Spirit into the world on Pentecost. And the world has never been the same since. Really, maybe I'll refer to this later, every time we think about Pentecost, it is really thinking about the birthday of the church, the anniversary of the church. For Israel, it was the anniversary of the giving of the law. For us, it's the anniversary of the giving of the Holy Spirit. You know, that law written in our hearts. So here, at this time, in, this, in, the, in, in Acts 2, this time of observing the traditional feast of weeks, which had been observed yearly, except when they fell into idolatry at times, they did not keep all the feasts, but observed yearly by the faithful of Israel, 50 days after the Passover, for over 1,500 years, here in Acts 2, God's people came to the last Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost was fully come. Why signal, signal or, or, you know, 
signify this one different than all the rest. This day of Pentecost was fully come. It was the last Pentecost, we can say, of the Old Testament and the first Pentecost of the New Testament, all wrapped up in one setting. To me, that's beautiful. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, it was the last and it was the first. Now, several interesting things before we go into the practical part of this message in relation to the Holy Spirit. One of the inspiring things I find, you probably do too, in Bible study, is to see how so much of the Old Testament is pointing toward the work of the Messiah. And we only touched a few little things here in relation to Pentecost, unleavened bread, and uh, the Passover, and all of that, the Feast of Weeks. But pointing forward to the work of the Messiah and all that he would accomplish in bringing salvation to all men. That's If you ever struggle at all with any doubts about the work of God or the scriptures, just go into a study of fulfilled prophecy. There's multitudes of people that have come to Christ, even from an intellectual background, by, by looking at the prophecies, fulfilled prophecies of the Bible. Um, there's a man, a minister, a preacher called Lee Strobel, who was an intellectual, he was an investigative journalist that came to Christ because he wanted to set out to prove his wife wrong in her Christian belief about the Bible. You probably know the story, but he, as an investigative journalist, went into all the prophecies and the miracles of Christ, and ended up, he found salvation. He ended up believing the Bible was true, even though he set out to prove it wrong. So there's, there's tremendous um, inspiration there, there when you look at that. Secondly, in the fulfillment of these um, many prophecies, there is an exactness in detail throughout the scriptures that only confirm the existence of a supernatural, intelligent, and transcendent creator God. And again, that can stretch our minds when you think about God accomplishing so many things all at once in some of these details. Thirdly, when God wanted to make an important announcement to the world, he had, he had interesting ways, he has interesting ways of getting people together. And that's just a side note in this from this passage, but, you know, at Christ's birth, there was a, the issue of taxation. Every man had to go to his birth city uh, for, uh, for that. Um, and so there was a gathering of people. At his crucifixion, it was the Passover time, so Jerusalem was overrun with people there for the Passover. And so uh, the crosses on Calvary's hill were there for multitudes to see. And now here on Pentecost was the Feast of Weeks, 50 days later. And again, Jerusalem was overflowing with people. And, uh, and so therefore, you had all these people together, able to hear the manifestation of the Spirit through um, their own language, um, their own tongue, which was, again, a supernatural act. But God has his ways of, of delivering his message to the world. Now, <clears throat> what does the indwelling presence of God in the Holy Spirit mean to us today? When you think about Pentecost, the indwelling presence of God in our lives 
is absolutely necessary if we will be what God wants us to be. The Holy Spirit is not an add-on to living the Christian life. The Holy Spirit is the life source of living the Christian life, and we need to always keep that in focus. And so what does it mean to have the Holy Spirit present in your life, in my life today? I'd like just to go through some of these, these things and think about this. Jesus promised the Spirit to the believers. We can just turn back to uh, John chapter 16 and notice what, what Jesus uh, pr- promised here. John chapter 16 and verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient or necessary for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but I can, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he shall show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said I that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you a little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to my Father. Notice here the promise of the Spirit. He said, Jesus said, it's, it's necessary, it's important that, as, that I go away so the Holy Spirit can come. Now, what is the work of the Holy Spirit? There is tremendous power in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I believe this morning I'm preaching this message to many of you who know the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And maybe we would say, well, you know, if I was asked this question, how do you know? What is the proof? Maybe we kind of like have to think about that a bit. But it's a good thing to think about. How do you know that you have the Holy Spirit? And the power of the Holy Spirit. Or, of course, if we're not never surrender our life to Jesus Christ, then we don't have the power of the Holy Spirit. But I'd just like to look at a few, a few of these principles. The Holy Spirit, first of all, is part of every genuine conversion experience. The Holy Spirit is part of every genuine conversion experience. Romans 8 verse 9 says, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. It simply means, if we don't possess the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives, his power... In our life, we do not belong to God. We do not have a a relationship with with God. We are not experiencing salvation in our hearts. And so the Holy Spirit is a part of every conversion experience. The Holy Spirit is also the energizing force in conversion. John 6, 63 says, There Jesus said, It is the Spirit that quickeneth. The word quickeneth means to make alive. And, of course, we can turn to Ephesians 2. We who were dead in trespasses and sins, yet through the work of the Holy Spirit, we are made alive. We are quickened. And so this morning, as we have experienced that Holy Spirit energizing force 
in our conversion experience, that is that was evidence at that time of the new birth or the power of the Holy Spirit in that new birth experience. Now, another principle in relation to the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit will always work in perfect harmony with Christ. And we notice some of that, some of those uh, verses, you know, here in um, John 16, in verse 13, where Jesus said, For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. The Holy Spirit will always, always work in perfect harmony with Christ, which means that the Holy Spirit will never contradict the written word of God, the written scriptures, never. Beware of anyone that claims Holy Spirit voice, Holy Spirit confirmation of something they want to do or say they are directed to do through the power of the Holy Spirit that contradicts the written word of God. There's a lot of that in this world today under the name of Christianity. You've heard many of the statements made. I've heard them, a lot of them. I don't know where you'd even begin the, the list. A man claiming Holy Spirit directed him to leave his wife. A wife claims Holy Spirit directed her to leave her husband. Um, Holy Spirit saying you don't need to be a part of a church. Holy Spirit telling a woman that she doesn't need to wear something on her head. You go on and on and on. You've, you've heard them all. It's a voice of a spirit, but it's not the voice of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit will never contradict the written word of God. Never. Jesus said, he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he heareth, that shall he speak. The Holy Spirit will never force himself on anyone. There's times that I've seen tremendous force in the power of the Holy Spirit. But as far as our wills, the Holy Spirit will not force himself on anyone. That's why 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 19 says, quench not the spirit, which means that there is a possibility through our act of a will that we can quench the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because he's not going to override that, that free will that God has given to us. He's not going to force himself on anyone. That's why we, we reject the teaching of, of Calvinism on the basis of irresistible grace. You know that sometimes, you know, the grace of God just hits his person and they get saved. It, it's not in a matter of any will. That's not what the scriptures teach. Ephesians 4.30 And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed under the day of redemption. It's possible to grieve the Holy Spirit. So those verses just point out the fact that he will never force himself on anyone, but will respond to the free will and the choice of man. The Holy Spirit will always work to promote Christ and not himself. The Holy Spirit as a person stays in the background 
He's that abiding comforter or that, that, um, that one who relates to us through our hearts, through our minds, through the conscience, through his influence and power, through the grace of God, and that influence upon us and exerting, exerting that nudging, that, that um, as it were, that, that, that influence. But he, he promotes Christ, not himself. Jesus referred to that in John 16, the verse I read there in verse 14. He says, he shall glorify me. He's not going to be that prominent person. And that's why, it's, you know, I struggle a bit when I, you know, I hear people sometimes in some settings, you know, they, 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 it's all about the Holy Spirit. And, and yes, we believe in the Holy Spirit, and he is a tremendous power and force in our lives like we've been talking about. But, but he's going to glorify Jesus. And Jesus is going to be the central one that we're going to be worshiping and, and honoring and because the Holy Spirit is pushing us and nudging us toward Christ and to glorify Christ. Says he, Jesus said, He shall glorify me. John 15, 26, He shall testify of me. So the real work of the Holy Spirit is to push us and influence us and direct us toward Jesus Christ, our Messiah. And that's why we need to be careful that we never seek to exalt the work of the Spirit over the work of Christ. It can be a subtle thing, but it can happen. Remember, he will only come in when invited. He will only do what he is permitted to do in our hearts. We can hinder his work. We can choose to ignore him, and we can send him away. And that's why the scripture gives those warnings like we talked about. I'd like to think now of some reasons the Holy Spirit cannot do his work. Have you ever realized because of something in your heart or life that the Holy Spirit is not as powerful, not at work? You felt, you felt weak, weakened because of acts of the will? The Holy Spirit cannot do his work at times for various reasons. One would be lack of understanding. Acts 19.2 there, some has said they, they had never heard of the Holy Spirit. So this lack of understanding, lack of teaching. There also could be lack of surrender. We have that stubborn stubbornness at times in our hearts and lives that we have allowed you know, that we don't want to follow the voice of the Spirit. We don't want to be sensitive to His guidance and voice in our hearts, and we become stubborn and push back. Lack, a lack of surrender. Remember, He will never overpower a stubborn will. He can work on us hard. He can, we can feel the condemnation but he will not over, overpower that will. He leads us one step at a time. And if we stop, resist at some point, he will wait until we are ready to continue, to go back to that point in life and, and pick up our submission and humility. And so we can never sidestep him and, and go on 
that will lead us, lead us into spiritual defeat. If we resisted the work of the Holy Spirit in, your, in my life, your life, at this one area, I don't want to give up or surrender or whatever it is, you can't just kind of ignore that and think you're going to go on in your spiritual life and have victory. We need to deal with that. The Holy Spirit is waiting there at that point. Come back to that in repentance and humility and seek the face of God. And then we can go on again. Remember, whatever point in life that we refuse to take the next step in our walk with the Spirit, we can jeopardize our our spiritual life, our spiritual vigor. Sometimes we may wonder, young people, I've been there, wonder like, what is wrong with me? I just don't have that spiritual that spiritual interest, or I just, I'm struggling in things that I should really not be struggling with. And many times you can just go back and pinpoint something, you know, where we left the path, where we got a little stubborn, where we resisted the work of the Holy Spirit and his sanctifying work. And that's where we have to go back and pick that up and surrender and, and find our way again. So we can go on in the spirit power that God wants to give us. Well, there can be the fear of, co- of the cost afraid of where the Spirit might lead us or what he may ask us to do through the work of, of Christ in our hearts and the indwelling presence. His work is to make a life Christ-like. And there is no telling what that will cost you in his the sanctifying work and the giving up. There's times we think we've given it all up and something else comes up and we have to give it up again. It's a part of that sanctifying work. I think of the life of the Apostle Paul, you know, there where where God told Ananias in relation to the conversion of Saul there, there on the road to Damascus, he said, I will show him how great things he must suffer for my namesake. How would you like to have that said of you? But I'm saving you. I'm giving you redemption. And I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for my namesake. It's probably good God doesn't tell us what our future is. He lets us in the dark. That, in that case, Saul was told. And you look at his life. And as he went on to live that life of suffering and sacrifice over and over and over again. But he had that positive outlook. One place he says, I'm filling up in my body the, as it were, the, bru- the bruises, the marks of the Lord Jesus. So he said, all the bruises, all the things I've had to bear, he said, I'm taking them for Christ in my body. Christ is not here in body anymore. They can't hit him. They can't beat him. They can't spit on him. But they'll do it to me. And Paul said, I'm, I'm happy. I'm glad to be able to take that for Christ. I'll take the blows for him. And remember, he lists so many of those. That positive outlook, even in the midst of suffering and learning something about what Christ was going to call him. So the fear of the cost. We can, none of us can say in sincerity of our hearts before God that I'll go this far and no further. Or I will do this, but not this. We cannot say that. We cannot put any reserves in place. 
if we're truly, sincerely following the Holy Spirit leading in our lives. Well, there's also another issue would be the control by the natural man. There are only two controlling forces in our lives, the natural man and the spiritual man. The spirit cannot work at times because the natural man is in control. And we, we step back from following what we know is right, and we, we choose a different path for a while in our lives. And, and, and guess what? The natural man is in control. And the spirit is, God is not going to be leading a natural man. He's only going to lead a spiritual man. We can never make the natural man the starting point for change or the change for good and expect to become Christ-like. You know, the, the, the thing of just, you know, following, you know, what we, you know, can, what disciplines we can place upon ourselves and somehow think that, that there's a starting point with our will outside of the Spirit of God. I often think of that example of, of Abraham there. You know, when God came back to him and said, I'm going to give you a son, a promised son, Ishmael was born already, which was, as the scriptures point out, it was a, of the, it was a, it was a natural. He was the natural one. And, um, you know, Isaac was, the, was going to be the spiritual son. And God came and, and reconfirmed that, that promise to him. And Abraham said, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. You know, and, and Abraham, in a sense, was offering that natural um, decision, that natural um, substitute for the promise of a spiritual son. And we can do the same thing. Somehow offer to God, you know, that natural man, that natural will, that natural uh, disciplines or whatever it is, and think that somehow that's going to count for something. When it's the wrong starting place, it's where many people go wrong. After a while, they'll say, you know, the Christian life is too hard or it doesn't make sense. You know, but what they really need is an infilling of the Holy Spirit of God. That's the change that is needed. Well, resisting the, of the Holy Spirit, Acts 7.51, there, I believe it was Stephen there, he said, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Just a pushing back, a resisting of the truth. We resist the Holy Spirit by resisting revealed truth in our lives. So how many, how many of you, how many of us, have ever felt a nudge of the Holy Spirit to do something and we just argued our way out of it? Ever done that? We, we can do that. There's that pushback, that resisting. That's not what God is looking for in relation to submission to his will. All right, a few things in closing. What would the Holy Spirit do in the world? We think of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, fully come. According to John 16, 8, we read that passage, he's going to convince the world of sin He's going to convince the world of righteousness and he's going to convince the world of judgment. How do you interpret that? How do we understand that? Here's one way to look at it. Every person, every man has his own idea of what is sin. 
or every man has his own idea of what is righteousness or what is true judgment. But the Holy Spirit of God sets God's standard for man. This is what God says is sin. This is what God says is is righteousness. And this is what God says is true judgment. The Holy Spirit establishes that in the hearts of men. Why did the world, I say world in, in quotes, why did Satan through the world begin to persecute the church from day one? Why? The church has been under attack ever since. It's increasing today. We see it all around us. The attacks are increasing, and the Scriptures promise they're going to get worse. There's always going to be an attack upon the church because it's the work of God. And the reason, and, and men look at this, and we, there's an establishment of righteousness, the establishment of sin, the establishment of judgment, and men hate truth. Men hate light. They love darkness. And so whenever there's a true Christian representing what sin is, representing what righteousness is, representing what judgment is, there's hatred for that. And that's going to increase in society toward the true believer because the Holy Spirit is in the world through the lives of of his people establishing those lines. They could try, try to argue it away, you know, and, you know, what is sin or, you know, all those things. They try to just smother it, you know, cover it up, ridicule it. But the Holy Spirit of God establishes that in the world. That's why the Christian is hated. What will the Holy Spirit do in your life? What is the Holy Spirit doing in your life today? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? and to me in our lives. Well, he can make us into a new person through conversion. Old things can be gone, pass away. All things become new. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. He can make us more Christ-like every day. People say, well, you know, these Christians, they're just hypocrites. And there's hypocrites around. We know that. But you know, I'd rather be a stumbling, struggling believer than a proud, accusatory sinner. If we have enough knowledge to say that so-and-so is a hypocrite, That means we have enough knowledge to know what we should do about ourselves that we do not be a a hypocrite. Which makes us very, very accountable. The Holy Spirit of God can make us Christ-like. We're not done yet. We're not home yet. We're saved, but being saved. And in being saved, there's that continual work of the Holy Spirit to make us more Christ-like. He can change our feelings towards others. We talked about brotherly love, relationships in our science lesson. He will change your opinion of yourself for struggling with pride, arrogance, stubbornness, whatever it is. 
The Holy Spirit can change that. He can break us into some pretty small pieces. I felt that. He can also help us to grow into a spiritual person that God wants us to be. Continue looking into that mirror of truth and responding to the glory of Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit in the brotherhood, he gives spiritual power and discernment. I'm glad this morning to be able to be part of what I believe is a spiritual brotherhood. While we each possess the Holy Spirit of God within our hearts, as a a born-again believer, as a Christian, we have found grace. We have the power of the Holy Spirit within. And his continual work. But then to be part of a brotherhood where there's other believers that also have the Holy Spirit. And that blending together. That bringing together. That pulling together. Which means that you and I each have an expanded aspect of the Holy Spirit's work than what we would have individually if it was just ourselves. That's why Ephesians talks about this. He says, we are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. We are built together. We each have the Holy Spirit. We come together in united brotherhood. And there's an expansion of the Holy Spirit's power that we receive. One illustration would be the gifts that are distributed in, in a brotherhood. Because none of us have all the gifts. But by, by being partakers of this in the power of the Holy Spirit in brotherhood, we receive the personal benefit of all those other gifts. See, that's an expansion of it. And that's why we benefit so much from the Holy Spirit living in each of our lives together. He encourages spiritual growth and understanding of the Scriptures. We go into the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit pulls things out of the Scriptures and shows us. How many times have we read the same passage over and over again and, and even like this one, you know, Acts 2. I never thought about this idea of the, whole, the, or the Pentecost being fully come. It's like, what does that mean? Why do he say fully come? I've read it many times. This time it jumped out at me. It's, it's, the Holy Spirit does that. Jesus said he's going to bring things to your remembrance. And we go through life and we hear a message, we read the scriptures, we, you know, Messages of songs or whatever it is. But all of a sudden those, those thoughts come back to us. Into our minds at the right time. It's the Holy Spirit bringing those thoughts to us. There is that power there. There will be a revival instead of complacency. He will give unity of purpose and vision. He gives gifts to individuals, to individual people for the blessing of all. And he calls leaders for the blessing of God's people. You know, the greatest power in all the universe lies within our lives in the person of the Holy Spirit and is just waiting for us to allow him to show his power to us personally and through us to the world around us and also in the church today. The greatest power of the universe lives within in the power and work of the Holy Spirit. Should we forget Pentecost? One song we sang, 
Rise up, O men of God. One phrase there says, Her strength unequal to her task. Rise up and make her great. It's the power of the Holy Spirit within that makes our strength unequal to the task. And that's why Jesus said, Even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Brothers and sisters, friends this morning, let's continue to explore the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives. There's so much yet for us to experience, not only personally, but also collectively. Just a a question in closing. Do people take knowledge of us by our actions, attitudes, and words that we have been with Jesus, like was said of the disciples? Because we have the Holy Spirit of God within our hearts. Let's kneel to pray. Thank you, Father, for your wisdom and understanding the needs of our hearts and what is required for us to live faithfully in today's world. Father, we thank you for the the coming of Christ into the world and also of your Holy Spirit and that is given to each one who finds salvation, who calls upon your name. And Father, we just thank you for this tremendous power that we have. And we realize, Father, that there is is a lot of the power that is that um, is yet to be explored, yet to be, to, to be understood. And so we just thank you and pray that you would give us wisdom, grace, and understanding to know how to relate to this power in our lives so each of us can live faithfully, we can be your faithful children in each aspect of life. Father, where there is any struggling in spiritual defeat, we just pray that you would bless them May they have a vision again of your Holy Spirit and the power that he gives. We can live in victory and be faithful. We pray this morning for those who were not able to be here for various reasons, be with them. We pray for Mart again as well and her health. We thank you that the surgery was successful. We just pray your continued blessing upon her, her health, that she may be restored according to your will. We also pray for the grieving family. And families in relation to the recent death. We just pray for them and uphold them and bless them. May your comfort be with them. We also pray this morning for the ordination plans for Cataldo this evening. Bless Brother Paul and his wife as they accept that responsibility and may your blessing and guidance be with them. May it be a blessing to the congregation there. And so Father, just be with us and bless us this week again. May your presence of your Holy Spirit be felt in each of our lives for your glory and honor. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.